0: So if you have your Bibles, please, that's Mark chapter 9 and verse 43. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched Pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. For every one shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltness, wherewith will will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. Amen. May the Lord bless to us this reading from his word. Hell is a solemn subject and I would say that it is also a fearful subject. If hell holds no fear for you because you are fully assured of heaven and salvation, then I would say to you, thank the Lord for that. But I also say this, at least hear the teaching of Scripture regarding hell and hell fire, and hear it quietly and hear it respectfully. Knowing about hell Will do your heart good. In this passage before us today, the Lord Jesus Christ carefully and purposefully set out clear lessons concerning hell for his disciples. And I suspect that many of us have never really thought about the Lord's purpose in teaching his disciples these truths. Indeed, we might say, uh, Lord, tell them about heaven. that's where they're going. These were, were men of faith. These, these men were never going to hell. Why did they need to know about hell? You've already said, Lord, that that there are two kinds of people in this world. Those that are for us and those that are against. Those that are the elect of God and those that are the reprobate. Those who are righteous in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. Why is there any need to teach those who are in Christ and righteous anything about hell? Well, we're going to come back to that in a few moments. But first of all, I just want to make a little bit of a a disclaimer and a a little bit of a, a, a point here. I have no desire to be a fire and brimstone preacher. Sometimes you'll hear people saying that they miss the old fashioned hellfire preaching. And I'm not sure who they're thinking about. Maybe, maybe they're thinking about Noah or or Elijah or someone like that. And I can't imagine that they would be speaking about Paul, because he said that uh, he, all he would preach was Jesus Christ crucified. But these old. Fire and brimstone preachers, so-called, that, that some people hanker after. No doubt their preaching was dramatic. No doubt it was rousing. And and they would be able to, to create graphic pictures of, of what it was to to be condemned to the burning fires of hell. Maybe it was even scary. But I don't know what good it did, in truth. Because you cannot frighten people into heaven by teaching them about the punishment in hell. Preaching hell and punishment, preaching about the punishment that is to come, it might be good fodder for a free will preacher who's keen to harvest emotional decisions. Or maybe uh, for the legalist who's trying to frighten his congregation into obeying some code of conduct or to get the children to be good. But the fear of hell has never saved anyone. We often say, don't we, that when something is repeated in Scripture, it is for good reason. It's for emphasis. And we should never assume that repetition in the word of God is is simply duplication. And here in this passage that we have read together uh, today, these last few verses of Mark chapter uh, 9, the Lord Jesus Christ describes hell to his disciples in exactly the same words three times in a row. So we have to give this message the attention that it deserves. In recent weeks, we have spoken about the lessons that the Lord was teaching his disciples. And we discovered that the, Lord, the disciples had been bickering as they had travelled back from Uh, the the area around Caesarea Philippi, all the way back into Galilee and and Capernaum. And the Lord had had to draw them aside and and sit them down and address the uh, uh, preconceptions and presumptions that these uh, disciples had. They were arguing about who would be the greatest in the Kingdom that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to establish. And they were thinking about what position they might obtain in that kingdom, which they still expected to be established in Israel and have some military, some glorious duration in time built up perhaps upon the foundations of the pictures and the memories and the stories of of David's kingdom in days gone by. But it was to correct that wrong expectation, that these words about hell came from the Saviour's lips. And it was to show his disciples the foolishness of that idea, that these descriptive statements about hell are given. Here the Lord Jesus Christ is telling these disciples that these these darling thoughts that they held, that, that they held so dear and cherished and prized, they had to go. Those ideas that they had, about natural things and physical kingdoms and power and and glory coming to them and their position in the hierarchy of the kingdom of Christ in the days that were to come. They had to be cut away. They had to be severed. These disciples were living an illusion that had to be corrected because they had a ministry to perform. They had a service to fulfill in the kingdom of Christ, and that notion of a kingdom had to go. And no doubt the disciples saw themselves filling some high offices in in this kingdom of their vain imagination. Maybe one of them was to be the hand of the king. And uh, to, to be responsible for enacting his will and his purpose, strong to guide the people. Another was to be a foot fleet of foot who would, who would carry the commands of, of the king to, to his subjects in, in the land. And one would be the eye to see who would be wise and all would be valuable members of this great body, this great kingdom, this great established rule in the land of Israel. They imagined themselves to be important people accomplishing great things for God. The kingdom of God is not a nation state and it's not a physical power. We need that message still today because too many churches and too many so-called believers still imagine that they can create a physical, natural kingdom of Christ here upon earth. Christ's kingdom doesn't need manpower. It doesn't need armies. It doesn't need physical prowess. It's a spiritual people. And the only need is that that people be gathered in through the preaching of the gospel. There is a predefined number, a predetermined group, a predestinated people. And they are spread all over this world. And the gospel must be carried to them. It will be carried to them that they might hear and receive and believe. These disciples weren't being called to lead armies and live in royal palaces, but to preach Jesus Christ crucified and to preach Him in foreign lands to the ends of the earth, to speak truth, to carry the message of salvation the message of forgiveness and peace with God to the nations of the world and to the ends of the earth. This wasn't going to be an easy life. This was going to be a service that would cost them their life. You see, the kingdom of God is no place for pride and it's no place for leaning on natural ability. The only quality essential for divine service is faith. And true service is achieved by trusting God's promises. We imagine that the Lord uses those who have skills and abilities. That's not right. The Lord gives gifts to those Whom he pleases, and in the employment of those gifts by faith, the Lord is pleased to do his will in this world. God will use a one handed man suitably dependent upon the Lord to a greater effect than those who come in their own strength. God will use a lame woman, humbled perhaps by her lameness, but suitably reliant upon him to greater effect in his service than all who run unsent. God will use a one-eyed child to greater purpose in his service than those who see by natural wisdom and by natural learning. So much church activity in these days is is conducted using the tools and the techniques of worldly wisdom in the absence of faith and spiritual understanding. And that might well make a movement. It might even create a denomination But it won't make one single convert. What the Lord Jesus Christ was telling his disciples with these words was the fact that faith is of the essence. Faith is the sole attribute sought by God. And the Lord Jesus Christ in teaching his disciples about hell and hell fire is using this picture of hell to reinforce this message that he has taught them about the singularity, the aloneness of faith as being acceptable with God. Faith in Jesus Christ alone distinguishes between those who go to heaven and those who go to hell. Now the disciples had learned that lesson. They knew this. They had been with the Saviour long enough to have heard his ministry and to have heard his message. The Lord is disabusing them of their foolish notions, their, their, their illusions about a kingdom by pointing them to the fact that faith alone is all that he requires. He had said, had he not, to to Jairus in in chapter 5, verse 36, only believe, only believe and all things are possible. The lady that had come with the issue of blood, the Lord told her, daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, we read there about Jesus seeing the faith of those men that had brought their friend to him and dug the hole in the roof and lowered them down. And it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Faith is the crucial element. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is what God looks for. Faith alone. And the matter is non-negotiable. Remember what the Lord had said. For he that is not against us is on our part. Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of believers. And faith alone marks out those who have been freed from sin's condemnation. Who have been liberated from that worm of conscience. And from the reprobate hellfire that will come upon those who are outside of Christ. By this example of hell, the Lord is opening the understanding of his disciples and our understanding to some of the horrors of hell. Now I mentioned in in yesterday's introduction that I sent out, um, uh, to, to, to the sermon, and, and, and here's the advert. Again, if, if anyone listening doesn't get these little introductions, then uh, do ask me for them and, and I'll send it to you because I, I, I hope that they will be useful in setting a, a context in which some of their thoughts uh, will find a, a hook and a place. But there can scarcely be a believer who doesn't shudder at the awfulness of hell and yet unbelievers seem to have no real dread of what will soon be their experience everlastingly except for God's grace in Christ. Do you see do you see the, the, the inconsistency here believers who will never be in hell fear hell more than those for whom hell is designed and who will very soon be in it. Believers will never be in hell and they will never endure hell, hell's horrors. And yet they have more anxiety about hell than those who are standing on the very brim and on the edge. The Lord Jesus Christ has taught us about hell purposefully. He is teaching believers. He is teaching his disciples. He is teaching those who have faith in him about hell for a reason. He is teaching us about hell that we might appreciate the greatness of our salvation. Believers find hell dreadful not because well, it is dreadful, but because it measures the infinite wickedness of sin and it demonstrates God's attitude against sin. It demonstrates His wrath, His fury, His judgment, and it demonstrates it by reminding us that these very things that are the essence. Of being shut out and separated from God in hell. Where what was poured into the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sakes and because of our sin. The very thing that takes the unbeliever to hell and keeps him there under the fires that burn incessantly is what the Lord Jesus Christ endured in his soul for us. By being our willing substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself our eternal suffering in hell and bore it in his own soul. By beholding Christ subject to God's wrath, we understand a little better both the misery of hell and the magnificence of heaven. Peter the Apostle calls the Lord Jesus Christ's blood precious. How precious? How precious is Christ's blood? Viewing hell, we have a greater understanding of how precious the blood of Christ truly is. That was the price paid to keep us out of that place. We often think of Christ's blood fitting us for heaven, and that's true, but it also delivers us from hell. And by drawing back the curtain. Upon these eternal realities, the Lord lets us see how precious his cleansing blood is and how precious we are to him that he would pay such a price to redeem our souls from judgment. Three times in today's passage, the Lord draws his disciples' attention to the terrors of hell the most fearsome physical sufferings are employed as metaphors to describe what soul suffering will be people wonder if it's going to be real fire it will be no less awful than real fire It is fire that never shall be quenched. And and I don't know how we we talk about these things as far as natural fire and natural flame and whether they will be real and the same and the self-same thing. There are obvious differences. Here's a fire that's never quenched. It seems to be a fire that doesn't give off light because it's going to be a place of darkness and, and, and blackness. So to what extent it is real flames is perhaps of less importance as to describe something of the awfulness of being exposed to God's judgment without a saviour. Here's a fire that will not be quenched, that burns, but is never to consume that which it burns. It pains, but it doesn't inhibit memory. Men and women will still regret. There will be a conscious awareness of loss and separation. And hell is a place where the worm does not die, where guilt eats away, gnaws away at a man and a woman's conscience. It's a place of torment. It's a place of separation. It's a place of darkness. It's a place to be carefully avoided at all costs. Remember, the Lord has been teaching his disciples here about election and security and acceptance with God. And that division exists between the righteous and the wicked in this world, the elect and the reprobate god's covenant people are justified there is no sin in them there is no place in hell for them because the lord jesus christ has taken their hell and they are righteous in him they are redeemed and they are quickened in time through the preaching of the gospel by god the father the son and the holy spirit while others are left to themselves and remain willingly in their sin. But by informing the disciples about hell, the Lord is not suggesting that men and women can do anything to alter that state of being elect or being reprobate, to alter their eternal destiny. And Certainly, he is not suggesting that chopping off body parts or plucking out eyes to protect us from evil is going to be a way of not being in hell. It's Jesus' blood and the gospel of grace that saves from hell, not missing limbs. But knowing the wickedness of sin that damns to hell makes us more grateful. For the love and the mercy that has carried away our condemnation. The last couple of verses in these in this little passage, the, the Lord refers to a, a, a fire a, a, and also salt. And, and I believe that this is key to understanding these verses as well. The fire that he is speaking of here is a fire that salts and, and what does that mean? Well, it's a fire that burns endlessly and it purifies, but it never goes out. It is fueled by divine wrath against sin. Those who are touched by this fire will never be consumed by the fire. John tells us in the book of Revelation that the smoke of torment ascends up forever and ever, giving no rest day or night. Hellfire itself preserves those who suffer everlastingly in hell. The very fire that afflicts them preserves them in their suffering for all eternity and equally true for the lives of the elect, they also endure everlastingly. But they endure everlastingly because of the union that they have with the eternal Son of God. We are preserved under the terms of the covenant of grace. Not on this occasion by fire, which preserves the reprobate in hell, but in lieu of the fire that once burned in Christ's body and in his soul. The Lamb of God was sacrificed for us. The Old Testament speaks about that covenant of grace, and it speaks about salt being offered with every sacrifice. Now, the sacrifices in the Old Testament They looked forward to the one true sacrifice. We're back to our pictures and our types and our metaphors. The Old Testament sacrifices, they all looked forward. And we may well say that in truth, there only ever was one real sacrifice. Everything else was a shadow of that one true sacrifice, which was the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for his people. And as the Old Testament saints brought salt with their sacrifice, they were testifying to the fact that there needed to be faith with their sacrifice. There needed to be faith that they were looking forward to the one true sacrifice, which was Jesus who would yet come. So in the Old Testament every sacrifice was offered with salt and every approach to God must be salted with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise it was just a ritual. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the salt of the covenant. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He gives faith. And we have faith because of his goodness and his grace. Faith that then lays hold upon the work of Christ for the eternal life and joy and peace of his people. We've seen a development in the past few weeks in the ministry of the Lord. We've seen a development in the way in which the Lord has been speaking and his clear statements about his death, his transfiguration, which was a a once-in-the-history-of-the-world event, his turning now towards Jerusalem. And as he approaches his great purpose, he gives his disciples clear understanding of why he will die and what his sacrifice will achieve. Knowing what we are saved from is as important as knowing what we are saved to. Many people have a hope for heaven, but few believe in hell. It is good for us to have a lively sense of both. And that is why believers above all men and women in this world have a greater fear and anxiety of hell than anyone else. Warnings of hell will never frighten reprobates into glory. Judas Iscariot was present here amongst the disciples and he would soon take up permanent residence in hell for everlasting. He heard about hell from the lips of the greatest preacher ever and it made no difference at all to his hard heart but for the elect for the elect for those who believe for those who trust the revelation of hell as indeed the revelation of heaven shows us the infinite power wisdom and holiness of god in a way that nothing else can And in that sense, we may say that the revelation of hell that the scripture gives, that the Lord Jesus Christ gave, is as much as the revelation of heaven is for believers only. Our Lord Jesus Christ has the keys of death and hell. That's our comfort. Brothers and sisters, today... That's our comfort, that the Lord Jesus Christ has the keys of death and hell. And we come by faith to him who has the keys of death and hell. We trust the promises of God. We marvel at the covenant of grace. And we thank God for the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that by his death and his sacrifice, by his shed blood on the cross, sinners like us find peace with God and acceptance. The Lord Jesus Christ will keep our souls from going down to the pit and he will bring us, as he promises, to the place God has prepared for them that love him. We thank the Lord Jesus for showing us both hell and heaven, what he has saved us from and what he is saving us for. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Amen.